Hello, and welcome to another episode of SBCC Vaquero Voices, a podcast highlighting the unique voices that comprise our campus culture and how we're all working together to serve our students and the community at large. As usual, I'm joined by co-host Akil Hill. What's good, y'all? And today we're honored to welcome John Connolly to the show. Welcome, John. Welcome, John. So you're the director of the Atkinson Gallery in the in the Humanities Building on campus. Correct. And in terms of, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you came from other art galleries before or worked in other art galleries before you came to the Atkinson. Is there a huge difference in terms of running the day-to-day of a gallery that's on campus versus a, an art gallery in the community? Or is it kind of very similar in a lot of ways? Yes, it's a, it's, there's a big difference. I um, started out working in galleries after I graduated uh, undergrad in the early 90s, uh, working in galleries in Soho, commercial galleries. <clears throat> I graduated into a recession, so it was hard to find a job at first. Um, first gallery I worked for closed after a, a year and a half that I was working there. So I was on unemployment for a year and I was going to grad school. And then I got a job at another gallery and worked there for almost eight years and um, started off as the front desk person, just you know, greeting people, answering questions, doing labeling slides, things like that, and moved my way up to being an artist liaison where I helped the artists with running their studios and um, doing consignments for museum shows or gallery shows. Uh, and then actually became uh, one of the directors of the gallery. Um, and while I was there, I started uh, curating my own exhibitions under um, the name John Connolly Presents. And I was doing that in New York in sort of different spots around the city, sort of a nomadic curatorial project. And I was introducing uh, artists that at the time didn't have New York representation to uh, a New York audience. And it was basically a lot of series of three person shows because I really liked that dynamic. So that's, you know, that was a commercial gallery setting. So we were selling art and that's how we survived. And it was a lot about nurturing the artist's career, getting them into into museum shows, connecting them with curators, et cetera. I did uh, ultimately leave my directorship at the Andrea Rosen Gallery and I opened my own gallery and I had my own gallery in New York for 10 years. So um, that ended when I took over the directorship of the Felix Gonzalez Torres Foundation which is an artist that was represented by Andrea Rosen Gallery and an artist that I worked closely with for two years before he passed away in 1996. When I moved to Santa Barbara, um, I left that position and uh, came here and for about four years was doing art advising, uh, advising, building collections, curating independently. and then I um, saw the position for the directorship here at the Atkinson. I had been here, come here a number of times, particularly liked uh, Rafa Sparza's show um, that I saw here in 2018 and um, applied for the job and was hired in August of 2019. So um, had about six months of programming before COVID hit. And so we had to sort of pivot, but so it's been um, a learning experience from day one in terms of working in a, academic institution versus a commercial environment, Um, but then also having to deal with the whole COVID situation. So it's been, you know, it's been challenging for everyone, but that's been my own personal challenge for the last two and a half, almost three years now. So, so in terms of an academic gallery versus a commercial gallery, is the big difference that like the selling of the pieces is not as important or is that a big, a crucial part of the work you do now as well? I mean, we do, we do sell some um, to support 
help fund the gallery, um, but it's not our primary mission. Our primary mission is to um, support the students and support the faculty and support the community, uh, both on campus and, and off um, in terms of getting them um, uh, involved in, in the arts and getting them excited about the arts and getting students to see real life examples of what they're learning in the classroom, um, things like that. And so we are sort of uh, still nurturing and supporting artists' careers, um, but not as intensely. It's more of like, um, this is what's going on out there in the world and we're sharing it with, with people rather than trying to make and break you know, an artist's career. I had a quick question for you. Uh, you talked about earlier about the, the three-person dynamic. You prefer that or you really like that. Can you ex like expand a little bit on that? I was kind of curious to know why uh, you prefer that. It's not a, a preference per se. I mean, it's something that I like. I like the dynamic. I, I don't, it's something about it that when you're curating and you're putting three artists together and creating a dialogue, um, having three different voices, it just creates that, that diversity of, of a voice that I think is important. Um, it's just something that I started experimenting with early on with my, my program. And it's just something that I've continued with. The last show that we had here was called What is America? And I had Felix Gonzalez Torres, Glenn Ligon and Zoe Leonard. So three artists of similar generation, um, three artists addressing American identity in their work in very different ways. So I think um, in that sense, that's a good example. But we will be having a, a two-person artist and two alumni in the fall. So it's, I'm not wedded to just a three-person <laughs> exhibition. And we also will have a works on paper show with a, at least five or six artists. So I like the big group show dynamic as mm -hmm. well. It's just, um, I enjoy the, the, the sort of intimacy of three, Freeze, freeze company. I, don't know. I, I can definitely relate because I, I did, I threw shows for a little while, you know, around there. And sometimes you'd have like five or six band bills and it'd be, it'd be hard to kind of like, it'd be a lot for people to take in and for, you know, for, for just, just the art in general, just, it's a lot of bands. you know. So yeah. like a two, three band bill is really tight. You get each artist gets kind of a, a moment to shine. And then as, as an, uh, someone listening or, or someone attending the show, it's easier to kind of take in like, boom, 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 as opposed to like, it's almost like, overload at times when it's too many so they're, they're, i see i see we're trying to find that that sweet spot and that's a good analogy like that yeah so i guess in a lot of ways it sounds like you're like the the platonic ideal of an art gallery like you get to take the current like the need to sell out of it and you can really work on the curation and you can really work on like fostering that artistic like ingenuity and show them like the true kind of purpose of like the galleries here to exhibit and to kind of get this art out in the community and it's less about trying to like push it on people to kind of you know, sell something to, to meet a bottom line or to, 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 to really keep these artists alive where they're still kind of up and coming and hungry to just create. So that does sound pretty cool to me, just, just listening how you describe it. But I don't know if, if that's what the reality is or if it's just, you know, it's got its own darkness as well, I'm sure. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's always unique challenges to each job. But um, no, I, I really love to curate. That's the way that I feel like I'm, I can be creative. I, I, um, you know, I consider myself an artist sort of, but I, I didn't want to be an artist. I knew that early on. I took my first art history class in my undergrad, my freshman year. I worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and uh, actually the Van Gogh gift shop at the time. And that's when I decided I fell in love with art history and I wanted to study art history. But the school I was going to was um, Fordham University, which is in the Bronx in New York City, which is a Jesuit school, which was great. It was one of my best teachers were the Jesuits, but the student body was a little conservative 
And so I realized I wanted to be around more artists. And so I transferred to a school called SUNY Purchase, which is in Westchester County, which is about 45 minute drive from the city. And when I was in the Bronx, it was still like a 45 minute, you know, ride on the subway to, to downtown. Mm -hmm. So I was equally distant from the city. I was around a lot of creative people. They have great program in not only fine arts, but performing arts, film, um, and then they have the, uh, you know, the sciences, they have everything there and the great facilities. So it was one of the best decisions I ever made actually, because even though it was a state school and I was paying out of state tuition, it was still more affordable than the private university I was going to in, in the city. And um, yeah, I was really happy with that decision. And so I, I did take art classes while I was there in, in tandem with my art history classes. And um, I don't know when I actually discovered the, the concept of curating. I know they had a, in the program uh, at uh, SUNY Purchase, in your senior year, year, you could curate a show at their museum if you, your, your um, proposal was accepted. And mine wasn't accepted, so I was kind of devastated at the time, but I went on to conquer that <laughs> challenge and actually became a curator. And uh, again, that's the way I feel like I could be creative by bringing these different voices, artistic voices together to make a statement or to um, just to show off what's out there, what's being done, what I think is interesting kind of speaks to like the ability to zoom out on your life like in that moment that moment was probably devastating there and then like your ability to pivot and do something else with it in the grand scheme of things it's like it's now just like a blip on the windshield of life in the moment it was probably like everything but yeah. you being flexible and working with it i mean look and look at what you've carved out for yourself you have a career path you, you know like everything <laughs> everything's good you know so like it's it's kind of a good lesson for students that are coming up like those moments that you think are so like, they are very profound. They are very important, yeah. but in terms of the magnitude of effect they have in your life, like one's life is very long, you know, like it, it can be if you let it and, and yeah, you can just, as long as you keep pivoting and keep going and keep, keep grinding to, to, you know, put it out of the way, like things will work out at, at some point they have to work out, you know? So, so the current show going on, it, it's just wrapping up is the, the student show, right? Could you speak a little bit more about it, what the kind of premises um, well, it's uh, an exhibition that we have every year. It's our annual student exhibition. Always happens in the springtime. <clears throat> um, we had to push it back a little bit this year because of the Omicron um, surge in the early January. Actually, this is the first in-person student show that I've worked on since I started, you know, and almost three years later. <laughs> and so that was uh, interesting for me. I've never really worked on it. Well, I've worked on shows this large, but, um, you know, so many moving parts it's, it was it was interesting and getting the students engaged and getting students to apply was a bit challenging with covid and covid fatigue and things like that um so it was an inter interesting experience but I, i'm really pleased with the energy of the show and i think we had a good turnout for the opening and we uh, also always announce our scholarship awards awardees during the, the ceremony and uh, I was really pleased that Dr. Marilla was able to come and attend. And um, we have a president's award, purchase award. Um, so she chose two pieces for purchase through the foundation that she will be putting in her office. So that was, it was great. It was a great time. So I guess when, when they weren't in person, were you just kind of like doing it through Zoom, be like a camera person that would go around or how would you kind of do uh, no, things? The first over? year we just canceled it outright because um, that was April, 2020 and things were just you know, yeah. crazy. Um, the second year <clears throat> we had, uh, we just had it online. 
um, which turned out to be really, really a great experience. And, and we had some really great submissions. Um, and then this year is the first year that we're back in person since 2019. Can you tell people where you're actually located? Because I know sometimes <laughs> people can be like, where's that at? Yeah, I, that's one of our biggest issues. A lot of people don't, A, know that we exist. B, they can't find us if they know they exist. That we exist. <laughs> Even if they've been here before, there's a, you know, a lack of signage. There's a um, sort of lack of wayfinding uh, in general um, around you know, a lot of things, but um, particularly the gallery. So we're in the humanities building. We're on the second floor, room H202. It's a little confusing because the humanities building is three stories and it can seem like the ground floor is the first, as, or it seems like the second floor is the first floor, but it's- Yeah, I've run into that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So- um, Why is so it like that? I, that's the way the building was designed. I don't know. The building was built in 1975. The gallery was named after one of the first full-time faculty members whose name was Charles Atkinson. I think he was hired in the mid to late 50s and passed away in the late 60s. And they named the gallery after him when it was the building was inaugurated. The building was renovated in 2013, 2014. And where we have a beautiful 850 square foot space. Uh, we have an 850 square foot terrace that looks over the Santa Inez mountains. It's really a gorgeous location. And, you know, it truly is a jewel box of the, of the college and anything to get the word out about that we exist. That Our current hours are Monday through Thursday, uh, 11 to five and Fridays from 11 to three. That patio, have you been there, Hong? That patio, oh, yeah. like you walk out and it's like, I had never been and then I went and I, I was just shocked. Like you walk out on that patio and it's just like, what? The, the, the view is absolutely stunning. It is a beautiful building. It is, it is a, a wonderful kind of area. I, I guess uh, I guess I had a question. If you were someone from outside, like students can come and visit mm -hmm. the gallery, you know, they, they know where to park and stuff. But if you're coming from just a community member wanting to see the pieces in the gallery, what's the best place to park? What's the best kind of like navigation? Are you, I mean, they're just going to park in the student lots down low and walk up or can they park in the east campus lots for a certain amount of time or what what's the general um, spiel in that in that respect? yeah that's a great question and another issue that we've sort of um faced especially in the past the parking was a huge issue before covid um people that wanted to come to the gallery to to be able to park closest to the gallery would have to um notify us that they were coming or they still do um so they can get a parking pass so they can park in lot, I think it's 1A or 1B down here by the Winslow uh, Homer Outlook. Uh -huh. That's what it's called, right? Um, we do have two dedicated, two or three dedicated parking spots behind the humanities building. Um, so if the, for, for some reason, the parking lot is full, the student parking lot or employee parking lot, I'm sorry. Um, we do have three spaces available in the back. So there's always parking. And then also um, by the medical building, the, uh, the student services building, there's 30 minute metered parking as well. Um, and I'm, I'm working on a, I'm, one of my goals is to work on a new map you know, to guide people to parking. And even when they come on campus, you know, there's the two entrances. So that ultimately they go to the West campus entrance versus the East campus, campus entrance. So it's, you have to, cause you have to pull all the way around to get to us. So there's a lot of challenges there. Full disclosure, I was ticketed in one of those spots before. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find any parking. Like and I was like circling around, circling around. And then I I I was like, oh. Oh, in the Atkinson Gallery? Spot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I got a ticket there. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I I couldn't find parking one day and I was just like, I have a meeting. I got to yep. my gallery parking spot and I had to contest it. And I, I did get off. So. Yeah, man. So, in terms of contacting you to request, you know, parking, is it is email the, the way to go, right? I mean, are, they're not they're not calling. Okay, so I'll put I'll put the links in the show notes, you know, to the gallery website and to your email address because it's worth seeing. The gallery is a lovely space. The humanity building is a beautiful building, but the gallery is just a, a lovely space. Yeah, and 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 all the exhibits that I've I've ever seen have been just just really nice in there. So, yeah, and just in general, we have about up to six shows a year, you know, international. Uh, national and local artists there it totally varies um, we have three we are averaging about six artist talks that we sponsor a year now three per semester um, and we have other uh, other programming as well um, so there's a lot going on so we're in the process of trying to update our, our website as well you guys have like an instagram page or anything like that or yeah, yeah okay Atkinson gallery sbcc I'll get all so that's a great out. way to keep in touch with us. We also have a Facebook page, which is linked to the, the Instagram. So it's usually both. All right. Great. So we usually segue to, to what brought you to SPCC, but you kind of kind of spoke on that earlier. So I wanted to ask maybe, I guess, one more question. In terms of as a, a curator, a curatorial eye, or just like, to increase a fo- someone's appreciation of art, are there any tips you can give? Like, I'm a layperson with art. I can look at a piece and kind of like, I have feelings about it, you know. <laughs> I, I, but in terms of like a, 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 a curatorial eye or just a, a, just expanding my third eye a little bit in terms of how I, I view art, are there any like kind of basic tips, or is it just kind of getting in there and getting exposed to as much as you can and figuring out what you like individually? Yes, I think that's a great question. I. Um... When I graduated undergrad, I started going to galleries in um, New York and Soho. There was a few galleries in Chelsea at the time. And I was really puzzled by contemporary art. I was just like, what is this so, you know, I don't get it. And I I just kept looking, you know, and and talking to my friends, talking to other artists, reading art magazines, reading the paper, reviews in the paper. And slowly you start to, you realize that these artists are making art that is commenting on what came before in a, in, in a new way, usually. And that's what I started to find interesting about contemporary art, its relationship to art history, which is, you know, my subject. And seeing like how, when I was started working in, um, in galleries, I was like, oh, this is really exciting because we're actually part of making art history. You know, so this is all, brand new stuff and some of it will fall by the wayside and some of it will become really important. And then the things that intrigued me the most were usually the things that I was most puzzled by or, or mm. found you know, strange because they would stick in my mind and I kept coming back to them. <clears throat> for instance, when I inter- first interviewed for the uh, gallery that I worked for for eight years, Andrea Rosengallic, I was in the director's office or the owner's office and there was a piece by an artist named Andrea Zatel who works with um, how we uh, look for design to help make our lives better, how we look at systems um, to make our lives better. And she, there was a, um, it looked like a, like a shower stall, um, but it had all these little like pans and things like hoses and stuff. And so it was like a shower, but it had like 
It was also like a kitchen sink. And, and so it was, it was truly a, a thing, a design that she had come up with for saving time, for like taking a shower and washing your dishes at the same time. <laughs> and, um, and she experimented with a, a lot of those kinds of, of issues and actually became one of her artist liaisons. She had a headquarters in New York and Williamsburg, and then she had one in Joshua Tree, which still exists. But um, that piece really stuck with me. And I just found that those things that um, are, you know, are strange, um, sometimes are the most interesting and, and can really pull you in. Um, so yeah, my advice would be just keep looking, keep reading, keep talking to, to your friends. If you're really interested in becoming more um, aware of, of what's going on in the contemporary art world. So I guess uh, segueing that into my next question, in terms of you coming from New York and coming to Santa Barbara, in terms of how did you kind of adjust to the not lack of galleries, but the specific focus of most galleries to be like just coastal landscapes and, you know, like a lot of yeah. classic, classic yeah, art. Yeah. I mean, did you just have to get out of the city or do you just have to like kind of create the art where you can find it in town here or? Well, I mean, <clears throat> we're really fortunate to be so close to LA because um, there's a, a great contemporary art scene in LA, particularly these days. But the museums here do a great job. Um, mm -hmm. and we have some great curators here and there's James Glisson and Charlie Wiley at the SBMA and Sylvia Perea at ADNA Museum. And um, they're showing really interesting stuff. So there's a lot of options, but coming from New York, yeah, it was a little bit of a, definitely less to see, especially here in Santa Barbara. But I was ready for that. I had been in New York for a long time, um, you know, since I, since I graduated high school. So um, I had sort of um, moved on, you know, I was ready for a change. I was ready for a better quality of life and um, definitely found that here for sure. Fortunate when I come to work and work on this, you know, beautiful campus and have this beautiful gallery to work in and I get to curate and educate. And so it's all the things that I like to do. I definitely feel similarly coming from LA where in terms of there's a lot to see in, in LA, but nowadays half the time I'm, I'm too tired on the weekdays to go. And then on the week weekends, things are too packed. So I'm like, damn, eh, I'm, I'm all right. So yeah, I've kind of adjusted, you know, definitely. It's hard because to get around in LA, it just takes so long. So we find that what we do is we just target a neighborhood and get really focused and, you know, just go to the galleries in that area or the museums and, eat in that area and then leave, <laughs> head out. <laughs> um, and if you time it right, you can get home in, you know, an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. That's what frustrates me about LA the most though. It's like, if you get hit, you can on the, always, for me, it's always on the way back. It's like, wow, we are already home. It's only an hour and a half, but always on the way there. It's like three hours, two and a half hours, depending on where you're going. But yeah, you really got to find those off peak times and, and there's always going to be traffic. There's no like secret, no traffic time, but no. you just got to find the off peak times and, and you're really doing it the right way because where a lot of folks do go wrong is they, they have like a, a list of the must see things I have to do in LA and they think, Oh, and they look on the map. Oh, it's only 20 miles away, 25 miles away. We can definitely go here and go here. And it's like, no, no, no. 25 miles in LA, it could end up being an hour and a half, two hours just to just to cover that gap on the freeway so you really got to be mindful so finding just doing one neighborhood at a time or, or one locale because that's really how i when i grew up was able to explore because i wasn't driving then you can imagine not having a car in la is just a nightmare so when i took the bus i had to be really like you know intentional 
Like I'm taking the bus here because I'm going to spend the whole day here and then take the bus back. So it was, it was one of those things where that, that was really where I was able to entrench myself in certain neighborhoods at a time and kind of peel up, peel back the layers. And then when I finally did get a car and start driving, that's when it, it really made the city feel smaller, which was nice. Cause then I had a, a good awareness of various places and I could, I could kind of connect the dots, but just for folks that's traveling in, I'm doing a weekend in LA. Let me try to go from, you know, West Hollywood to East LA to Sunset Junction. It's like, you're going to have a bad time. And then those are the folks that are like, Oh, I hate LA. I can't do it. It's like, I mean, I definitely understand where you come from, but it's like, yeah, you have to be a little more nuanced for sure. Cause yeah. Even, and I feel like New York's the same way where you have to just hit an area at a time because you're usually taking the subway. The subway's not dropping you right off where you want to be. So you're, you're taking the subway to walk somewhere. You might need to take a bus connection too. like, it's, it's, I felt, I felt a lot of similar vibes when I was, when I was in New York for a little while too. Yeah, and usually when we're heading into LA, you have to like an appointment, and you're late, and um, so that's always frustrating because of the traffic. But coming back, usually we try to break it up, and we stop at like West Ridge for for dinner, and so you make it like you know a little a little bits and bites of trip. Akil is the master of the on the way back from LA. He's got like Thousand Oaks spots that are like blow your mind. <laughs> He's got like yeah Woodland Hills, you know like yeah. He'll, there's little dots along the way that Akil can definitely lead you the right way to find, find, that, find that good food stop on the way back. So I guess we we'll, might as well segue to uh, our food section. John, if there's any meals you've eaten recently around town or anything you've cooked recently or anything or like a, a meal that you ate growing up or just something that kind of speaks to you that, that you want to want to share with the show um well i love sushi and i find that there's not great sushi selections here in town um there is our favorite sushi places in ojai i don't know if you guys have been there it's called it's kaya full moon and they're very good they're, they're pretty new i think i think they've only been open for a few years i want to say a few years yeah and they're packed they're packed to the brim now <laughs> it's, it's yeah, hard to get in there just a few tables um and they were doing um during pandemic they were briefly doing um takeout takeout bento boxes uh but they stopped doing that and they were taking reservations for a while but the reservation system didn't seem to work for them so now you have to go we actually just went there for my 10th wedding anniversary and we got there at i think four 35 or something <laughs> for a five o'clock seating because um you, ha- you have to go and stand in line uh, and able to be sure that you get a table so it's it's quite popular and um really great great sushi really great uni really great you know friendly service so that's one of my favorite places uh i don't know if you've been to rory's yet in ohio that just opened in the, in the playhouse we had um dinner there for my birthday back in march and that was really great it was quite a quite a scene you know um but uh, uh those are my two plate probably current favorite places in ojai i did discover um a new sushi place it's not new but it's new to me it's called sun sushi on upper yeah. state yeah i've eaten there <clears throat> um there's a, a former faculty um professor named ron robertson and um his, his daughter's just donated some work um, through the foundation to the college. And so I met with them at um, his storage space to choose a few works. And one of the daughters is a, um, a chef, her name is Chef Edie. She used to run the Sojourner 
or be the chef at the Sojourner Cafe. Oh yeah. Um, uh -huh. So she recommended that we go to Sun Sushi. So we just went there for the first time recently, and I, I thought that was pretty pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's um, I love Mexican food, but like Santa Mescal is is pretty good. Um, I I find that we go there a lot or used to, but it's always pretty crowded. Um, yeah, when I bring folks from out of town, I usually go to Santo Mescal because it's a nice kind of outdoor seating, good vibe, yeah. and like good location. It's, it's, yeah. it's really nice. Um, Bells in Los Alamos and SY Kitchen in Santa Inez. But I mean, I don't have any secret spots that nobody knows about. <laughs> so the next time you're in LA, um, there's, you know, I, I'm a big sushi guy. Uh, I was born in Japan. And so I... Um, but there's a spot, it's called Kazanori, um, okay. that's, that's super. The only thing they do is hand rolls, but it's really, really, really good. Um, they have two locations, one in Westwood, one in Santa Monica, but you should check those, that places out. I, um, Roxanne and I went there, I took her there and she was like, you know, talking a little bit about, uh, I have high sushi standards and this and that. She was giving it to me. I'm like, listen, you know, just wait, just wait. Are you sure it's going to be good? Next thing you know, she's on the phone texting her mom. You know, <laughs> like this is the best sushi I've ever eaten. So uh, the next time you're in LA, look for those two spots. Uh, you'll definitely be pleased. Can you spell it again? What is it? K uh, Kazanori. Yeah. Um, K A Z U N O R I. Okay, thank you. So I guess I have a question in terms of your what are your go to orders at uh, at at a few of those spots like Half Moon Izakaya, Rory's, and stuff like. Are there certain dishes that you that you feel folks have to recommend if they go there? Because a lot of folks might just be going there once and be like, it's too packed, I'm not coming back. But what what do folks have to hit if they go to some of these restaurants that you, that you like? Well, the uni uh, hand roll at uh, Itsukaya is really to die for. Um, Rory's I've only eaten at once, so I don't really have a, a go-to for that. At uh, Santa Mescal, I don't know, they... Um, we should just get the, the crispy fried tacos, you know, that's the, the basics. Yeah, Santo Mescal's with the Los Agaves family. So they're, those those three item combo plates with the rice and beans stuff, like, oh, you can't go wrong because you get the chips yeah, and salsa We had a chimichanga going. at uh, Los Agaves the other day. It was pretty, pretty damn good. Can't, can't go wrong with the chimichanga. That, no. that is like so good. I mean, and yeah, you say you, did, you, say you, didn't, you don't have any secret spots, but the, all the restaurants you outlined are pretty much like a, like upper echelon in terms of flavor, in terms of all the restaurants in town, like Bell's is just doing amazing food right now. And the people that are bringing in that Predate barbecue and stuff that do pop-ups around the area. SY Kitchen is is kind of new, but just like they've really been really knocking things out of the park. I mean, Santo Mescal, the Lusagabe, you know, that family, the Luna family, it just has like, they have like six restaurants just in this town and they're really successful. So, I mean, yeah. And then, and then yeah, the Half Moon Izakaya. And I haven't been to Rory's at all. I don't know much about it, but I would definitely check it out because my, my wife's grandma lives out in Ohio. So I eat out there quite a bit actually and that's how i knew about the izakaya i'm gonna come on on you got john on here he's an artist he's he's gonna give us, <laughs> well, I mean, what you, he's gonna give us top shelf man he's giving us <laughs> top shelf restaurants he's not gonna come with anything other than that i wouldn't expect anything other than that <laughs> the eye because food, food is art yeah and, the, and that, third eye, food. that curatorial eye does extend like when you taste something really good that kind of elevates like yeah you, absolutely all right. Thank you for those picks. I'll definitely put them on the show notes. Cause like I said, that is a fount of knowledge for folks that want to eat like some of the best restaurants in town. Like you pretty much nailed all of them with your picks. So I will definitely get all those in the show notes and, um, Akil, what you got? Well, 
I mean, I, I'm not going top shelf, but I'm going to I mean, go, come on. We're, that is pretty top shelf in terms <laughs> of <laughs> I'm going to go uh, Shao Hoob's um, burger joint um, that just newly opened in the, the public market. Um, menu is um, fairly simple. Um, they kind of specialize in smash burgers. So you get the crispy edges, um, nice sesame seed bun. Um, and, uh, that's, that's my choice. Super, um, good spot. I would, what I think the single is two patties, right? Hung and the, the double is three patties. Yep. That's what tricked me because I got the double cause I wanted the two patties and it ended up being three patties. And I was like, Whoa, and it was $12. So we're talking about, talk about top shelf. That's, that's kind of getting to that upper level for a burger for me in terms of 12, but I guess with inflation and stuff, I guess I should normalize the cost. I, I guess it should be better <laughs> with that, but. But yeah, the single, the single, which is two patties, nine dollars, very reasonable, you know, in, to, in today's world for sure. Yeah, and if you do go there, um, don't sleep on the lemonade. The lemonade's really good from Chahoub's. Uh, don't overlook it. Um, but it's just classic burgers, um, you know. And for Santa Barbara, it's kind of hard to find that smash burger, crispy edges. Not too many places uh, that can do it right. Go ahead, huh? What do you got? I will say, I mean, the, the smash burger is is like, I guess in the last five or six years has become like the go-to burger. Like anyone's opening like a new burger joint that wants to get people coming, throngs uh-huh. coming through the door, it's going to be a smash burger place. Like I, I, I have love for the smash burger, but I have love for other regional burger styles as well because the smash burger, I feel like is not a West, it's not a California thing. It was like brought over, you know, the guy George Moss or whatever was really into burgers yeah. and, and really popularized. I mean, it's a, it's a great burger with the crispy edges and all that, but I have room for other burger styles in my life. You know, <laughs> they don't put tomato in it. They don't put lettuce. I, I, and I love the smash burger unequivocally. Not saying anything bad about it, but it's like IPAs, you know, like, like we were, LA was not a beer area. So I, you know, San Diego, Portland, all those areas, they're, they're fully beer towns. So it took a while for, for beer culture to come to LA. And now that it has, it's like 80, 90% IPAs. And I, and I do like IPAs, but you know, there's Pilsners, there's Amber, sour beer. And you know, like, I feel like IPAs and smash burgers are just, it's like the gateway, the entry point, and then like there's room for other types, but okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with Chaloubs. Chaloubs does a wonderful burger. They're the the best smash burger in, in town. So if you do like smash burgers or you like burgers in general, it's definitely the spot. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want that to become my like point for a rant about against against the smash. But <laughs> I don't so we'll go with all that. So what do you what do you have for us? I have a couple classic places. Not nothing, nothing too best ever anything, but um. We've been going to Shoreline Cafe a lot, which is right by SBCC, you know, right on the harbor. Yeah. In terms of we wanted a place that still does outdoor dining that, you know, pretty, pretty good food with a diverse menu that everyone gets something. And uh, yeah, my wife and my son and I, we've been going to Shoreline a lot. She said right, right by the beach in terms of bringing folks from out of town. It's a nice place to go. And, you know, it has a good history with SBCC because you could, you could walk down there get lunch and come back and make it within that, you know, really? 30 hour window. Well, 30 you, might minutes? Call, you might have to call it in. Who's, walk, yeah. who's walking? Down? <laughs> it depends on who's walking. <laughs> yeah. You could call definitely. You could definitely call in an order, walk down, pick it up and walk back. But yeah, if you're eating there, then yeah, you better like, yeah, it, it becomes a meeting at that point. So <laughs> we go to Shoreline all the time and I had no, we, I've lived here since 2014, had never been there. Um, we always thought it was like a dive. I didn't think they even had a bathroom. <laughs> and uh, until I started working at here at the college and my husband, he grew up on the Mesa. He had never been there. 
as well. And so now we end up going there all the time because it's like the food's great, you know, fine. The food, you get a great drink right yeah. on the beach. It's, yeah. You know, usually don't have to wait for a table like you do at Henry's. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. It's, it's and in great. terms of in terms of eating somewhere that's connected to the beach, like you talk about Henry's, Henry's is a great place to eat and it's a good view of the beach. But if you're trying to like eat and then like hang out on the beach, it's it's kind of a it's kind of disconnected. You know, yeah. you can't go. For, but if I because like, I have an eight year old son. So if I sit down at a table and he wants to go play at the beach, he can run to and fro and I, I can keep an eye on him. Like it's easy to supervise. Yeah. Like if I take him to Henry's, there's like a glass partition where I'm trying to like peek over people, like waiting in line and stuff. So in terms of that beach restaurant connection, it's a seamless transition. So I really like that. And then they do like, they do the the, the nachos and they have the, the, the grilled fish. And then they, you know, they have the enough stuff. nachos. It's like you could feed a family for four. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that chicken marinade is, is, it's like, just like a cilantro bait, kind of simple marinade, but the way that that chicken hits with the nacho, because I've tried the nachos without meat trying to be like, Oh, I'll save a couple bucks or something. It, you got to get it with either the chicken or the, or the, or the carne asada. Like there's no way to just do the nachos and happy hour. It's, it's a, it's a reasonable discount where, and it's a, it's a, a smaller portion. So it's more sensical for, for you to eat just a plate of nachos. But yeah, the, those nachos have held me down. Yeah. Many a time. And they got a good kid's meal, you know, for young ones. And, and I just, yeah, I never bothered. There's two, two things that I thought were tourist traps that ended up really turning me around. Shoreline Cafe is one of them where like, I was like, I don't, I don't need to eat there. I live right by the beach anywhere. And, and, and it blew me away because just the experience was, was, was good for me and my son. And then the land shark, the land shark, I was like, you'll never catch me on the land shark. That is like, no way. No. But I did a land shark with a large group and it was pretty awesome. Like <laughs> in terms of like entertaining and, and because you can, you bring your own alcohol, bring your own, whatever, whatever, you know, libations you're, you're choosing new vibe, you bring your own. So it ends up being very cost effective as well. And it's a night, they do a nice route. So where's the land shark? I'm not sure. I'm not familiar. It's the, it's the half boat, half car. So they do like the tour, you know, where they drive oh, up state well, street. I've been on that. So, oh, so you just bring your own food. Well, if you, if you have like a group, like, you know, you get like a, you know, a large group, then you can bring whatever food you want, whatever drink you want. They have, I, they have coolers and then yeah. you just, they do the land shark tour while you're just hanging out there. And then you, you put the music playlist on and the right. fact that they go in the water as a boat and then go on land. Yeah, and stuff. I did yeah. it with my nephew when he came to town. That was, that was kind of fun. Yeah. So, so yeah, just even the tour is nice, but when you get it with a big group and you're trying to have like a party, like in terms of holiday parties and like that, like I was like, no, you'll never catch me on the land shark. But now I'm like, every time that's my first suggestion. Like, yeah, me. Han's the one yelling at the cars. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, halfway off the boat, dude. Yeah. Okay. I, I, cause I, I like to get down, but I, I like to, you know, I, I, I kind of hold it in and I try to, yeah, I try to protect others too. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a protective soul here. <laughs> I feel like I owe that to people. You know, that's what I get for doing a, you know, starting to drink too young. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, segwaying, seg, uh, segwaying into our culture piece. John, uh, if you want to kick us off again, any, um, any kind of, Piece, book, music, movie, TV, art, anything that's moved you, music that you want to want to share with the group? <clears throat> Lead us off. Um, well, I'm a really slow reader, <laughs> uh, but I I have a bunch of books that I have on my my table that I've been reading. I start. I'm a, a big sci-fi fan, so um, I recently discovered Octav- Octavia Butler. Um, I read The Parable of the Sower. I'm reading Kindred now. Oh yeah. Um, for my 
birthday, uh, I got a couple books. One's called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century by Timothy Snyder. It's the illustrated version. And it's, uh, it's about how to resist authoritarianism um, in the 20th century using a lot of examples from the last 20th century. It's kind of uh, interesting, everything from Nazism to communism. The person that gave me that book, she's like, read this one first and then read Jane Goodall's book, The Book of Hope. So that's on my desk. I haven't started it yet. Another gift I got was Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of the American Dynasty about Cornelius Vanderbilt. I don't know if you guys are uh, um, Downton Abbey. Or, Downton Abbey. Um, that kind of crowd. But if you haven't watched Gilded Age, it's a really Guilty. great guilty pleasure. Um, the first season uh, wrapped up recently. I can't wait for the next one. Um, and then I have some books that we're reading related to our, our Getty PST uh, project that we that we uh, have going on. We received a grant from the Getty Foundation to do an exhibition in 2024 um, for the Pacific Standard Time project they do every four or five years. And the theme this year uh, or coming up in 2024 is art and science in LA. And we proposed an exhibition around indigenous knowledges and the intersection with contemporary art. And um, particularly around uh, natural botanical dyes and weaving techniques and the relationship to indigenous cosmovisions. So, you know, I'm reading everything from like the history of Cochineal and how it was stolen from the Aztecs in 1520 and changed the whole history of art uh, when it was brought to, to Europe to this oral history of um, Native American gardening um, that was done in the uh, turn of the century in the early 1900s. Um, so those are the kind of things that I'm that I'm reading right now. Um, and then in terms of shows, I would say the Mona Kuhn show at uh, UCSB and the Harmonio Rosales show, they're coming down soon. So if you guys haven't seen that, I would definitely go see that um, this weekend. I think it's coming down really, really soon. At the, at the gallery at UCSB? Yes, at the ADNA Museum. Uh, and I haven't seen the Van Gogh show over there, it's the same one. <laughs> I still haven't been either. It, it's been pretty busy, but I'm. I figured I'd go on a weeknight, one of these nights, and check it out. Because I hear it's really amazing. I mean, it got a great review from um, Christopher Knight in the LA Times. It is one of those things where, like, you, you see paintings and pictures and books and things of that sort, and, but to see them in person and just kind of, you can actually see some of the brush strokes and, and then just kind of the lay of the land of it. It really is very amazing especially like larger murals and things of that sort like the amount of work to, to make some of the larger murals that you just see kind of in as like little postage side stamp pictures and books and then you see them like holy cow that that's unreal <laughs> yeah i think i when i was in i was in new york once and went to moma and saw starry night and uh i was looking at it and i was like i can't believe that's really it you know because you just see it so like in so many places but when you're actually looking at the, the original and you're just like is that really it like, I can't believe it. That's the, the cool thing about paintings is that there's completely one of a kind. You know, there's mm -hmm. no other one like it in the world. And I'm a big antiques roadshow nerd as well. So whenever <laughs> whenever the paintings come up, I'm like, that's going to be the biggest the biggest haul. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so do, uh, so do you ever, have you ever been into the Santa Barbara flea market? It's the store on state street that has just it's like a vintage 1970 vibes just a whole bunch of different yeah uh, yeah i, I actually, actually mm -hmm. bought a um a print there that i found 
of a Russian greyhound, I think. I actually advise clients in their collections and stuff. So I bought it for her, for her collection. I paid very little for it, but it had some condition issues. But yeah, it was, I had a, it was one of those things where you had a good find. I think it was, it was there. Man, I found some um, a couple of paintings um, that I'm still trying to figure out like more about the artist, but they look like um, they were done. It totally has that Art Deco 1960 vibe. Um, so I'll send I'll send them to you to see. But I'm totally in love with them. Got them for a steal. They're like sixty dollars a piece. Um, but then she gave me a little bit of discount. But I love stuff like that. Like you, you know, just flea markets finding art, stuff like that is just such a good thing. You know, upcycling, I guess, is what they call it, right? Is it upcycling? Yeah. <laughs> and, and a tie with music. It's like digging in the crates. You know, you dig in the crates, you at the, at the yard sales and stuff, mm-hmm. and you pull, pull one out, you're like, oh, man, this, oh, man. this is special. You know, they, so it's it's good to have that eye for things. And then you try to play it cool, like like it's not special, but you know, like you found <laughs> something special. You're like, you know. Yeah. So, and you always hear the news stories, like someone pulled out, like an old Picasso, they didn't know they had in the back of the garage. So, so you always hope to be that, be that. <laughs> with with old, old records too, like some people don't know the values of some of the older records, or like the punk forty fives, where like you know, there's, there's like, oh, there's a pile in this corner. My son's thing, I just threw it out here to take them all. And those punk forty fives are worth a lot now wow. because yeah, the, the limited pressings, the fact that most of them got destroyed, and then like yeah, the fact that they were they were like people abroad appreciate them a lot owning those owning those copies as well yep i i t- tease my mom that's one of the things i'm like yo that record collection you know i'm like your mom's got some i'm like gems. slide them this way she would bring records into play when I, we were at the library and some of those like those that will independent I, I would buy copies after I, I saw her record i'm like okay i need a copy of this like the persuaders the independence mm-hmm. all those old artists were like yeah I, yeah your mom's got some classics for sure yeah. brothers johnson records she got oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes they don't know what they have. Like even in New York, I did a studio visit with an artist and he told me in a Chelsea flea market, there were some Warhol flower prints and he, he saw his friend and his friend was like, oh, you should go buy those. They're going to say that they're not real, but they are. And so he went over and he bought them and they turned out to be real. So wow. even in New York. I love stuff like that. That's what makes to... Antiques Roadshow such a good show, though. Yeah, Man, I, I've been trying to get to the Pasadena flea market for quite some time now. You know, uh, be careful with that one. Yeah, be careful. The Rose Bowl one is yeah. huge. That's the thing. It's like if you go on the wrong day, like if it's too hot, by the middle of the day you'll be you'll be heat like halfway to the heat stroke if you're not careful. So, yeah, you got <laughs> you got to plan it right. Go in the fall, go in the winter because it's an all day thing and because it, it's it's just enormous. Like or yeah, bring a bike. I don't know because yeah, I've. I've tried to do it a couple of times. It has definitely beat me. Like, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I like, oh yeah, I'm going to dig in the crates. Like first few vendors in after all, I'm like, oh man, I'm winded. Oh man, he's <laughs> doing this. You know, like, this guy's got too many records. I can't, you know? So yeah. World Bowl flea market. Just, just a lot though. But, yeah. yeah. We were eating downtown at the Chinese restaurant and um, noticed that it was a new, I don't know if it's the one that moved from Goleta, but there's a new antique shop next to mm-hmm. the old where Hungry Cat used to be. Yeah. Um, old town antiques. They used to be um, where, you know, that Woody's, that Turnpike, that Magnolia right. Center. Yeah, yeah. It was the, okay. We bought a few things from there out there in Goleta. I'll have I to always, go check that place out. Yeah, I always wonder about, like, antique stores around here because covering rent in this town is so tough that it's, like, you, you really got to be, like, I don't know how you kind of make it work in terms of making sure you're bringing more stuff in and selling enough to just cover rent and make sure you keep the lights on. It's, it's, it's yeah. All right. All right. You want to go next, Akil? You want me to go? Um, 
you can go. All right. I have a couple picks. Um, by the time this, this episode is uh, posted, it will be May, which is uh, AAPI plus Asian, Asian American Heritage Month. So I wanted to shout out that the new, the new Michelle Yeoh movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, it's in theaters now, and it was directed by the Daniels, whose last film was Swiss Army Man, which is also an excellent film. They also did the turn down for what music video. If you uh, if you're a little John fan, <laughs> that's where they kind of got their break. I guess the number of music video directors that have gone on to have great kind of film careers is, is pretty large now. You know, Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry, and all that. You know, so the Daniels are. Uh, I mean, it's just just a great film. Probably the the best film I've seen in a theater. You know, because I, I haven't been in the theater in a while. But then I did catch a few films. You know, the, the last six months or so, I saw Dune, Spider Man, and stuff. But yeah, it's an amazing film. Really good. And in terms of representation for the Asian community, it, it's another kind of notch in the belt that Crazy Rich Asians kind of set the tone and and, and just been riding that wave. The, the guy, uh, Ki Wei Kwan, he was known as Jonathan Kwan in the 80s. He was uh, short round in Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. And he was Data and Goonies. You know, he, if you talk about, talk about Asian representation, he is um, a Vietnamese person of Chinese descent who emigrated from Vietnam in the late 70s early 80s just like my family so yeah. when i first saw him on screen i mean i was way too young to be watching temple of doom because that part where the guy gets his heart ripped out still gives me nightmares to this day <laughs> but at the same time seeing him on the screen in both those films was really because it was one of those like one of those first like he's just like me you know he, he grew up he grew up just like me he knows what it feels like to like and you know and like my parents going through all their crazy stuff and like he he knows he went to the high, he went to Hammer High School, which is right next to San Gabriel High School where I went. So we were crosstown rivals in terms of schools. Like, yeah, he was the first kind of like piece of like I see myself in him on the TV. So having him make a make his acting come back in this movie because I guess he took a break in the '90s as roles dried up. He went to work for Corian doing uh, action choreography in Hong Kong, and then he worked for Wong Kar Wai for a while. He was a uh, I think an assistant director on 2046, which Wong Kar Wai is just like. A, a, a hallmark you know like in terms of asian asian film directors like you know you ang lee john woo you got to put Wong oh, Kar-wai yeah. up there as, mm-hmm. as i mean in terms of chunking express and all like that's all the great films in the in the name of in the mood for love or whatever like he just yeah so he came back to do to act in this movie and he's if he doesn't get a best supporting actor nomination for this movie i'll be very very upset because he he plays like uh his, his role is very kind of multifaceted here and he nailed it he did a great job and uh I was surprised that he played Michelle Yeoh's like spouse because I thought they were like of two different generations, but I guess they're only like, you know, eight or nine years apart. So I guess with the way Asians age, it just works and it does work. Like, you know, so, and yeah, it's just a great, just a great film. Like I, I, I don't want to give away any plot because it's worth going in fresh, but it's also a great film to see in the theaters because in terms of audience interaction, like, like everyone's laughing, having a good time. Like it's a good, a good theater film. And in terms of COVID, COVID worries, it, whether you have them or not, I, I went in, watched the whole movie fully masked and uh, no issues. I don't know, you know where case numbers would be whenever anyone else goes to see it. But for me, I felt very safe for the mask on and it was fine. And it was a great film. Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Everything, everywhere, all at once. And then because John's here, I wanted to shout out um, an art book, uh, Dark Metropolis by uh, with the works of Irving Norman. Irving Norman is a... 20th century early 20th century born in lithuania i think and then emigrated to new york and then ended up in the bay area but he did uh, large murals uh with social commentary i mean he, he got on he ended up on like fbica watch lists they were watching his mail to like the 70s but he was a muralist and he and his stuff is very big and very detailed and it's uh yeah he does things 
on a very grand scale, it's like very can be some dark macabre imagery because he's very concerned with totalitarianism and authoritarianism, like you were mentioning, John, in, in your in uh, you know Octavia Butler and all this, some of the some of that work and. And it just, when I saw that work in person, one of those, like we were talking about seeing art in person, I went to an exhibit of his that he did at uh, the Pasadena Museum of California Art, you know, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And seeing some of those pieces live, the, the big, large kind of murals live was, was really moving to me and it really spoke to me. And, and so I picked up the book then and I just, I just hang on to it and I, I crack it open every now and then just to kind of revisit some of those pieces so I can get, like transport myself back to when I was standing in front of them just admiring just this, the sheer amount of detail that goes into his work and just i mean just especially when you when you do dark stuff it's a lot of black paint you know it's a lot like just a base layer i mean if you, i guess you, you could work on dark canvases that's what they did for the batman animated show but just that first layer of darkness beyond what else you put in there is a lot of work and it's you know physically demanding and um so yeah the book is dark metropolis but just the artist uh, uh irving norman i feel like he, he deserves a little more shine so i'll, so I'll shine a light on irving norman over there so Nice. All right, Akil, what you got? Well, I got, um, I've been listening to quite a bit of uh, jazz lately. So I wanted to drop uh, the soundtrack for the movie, uh, The Photograph. Um, I haven't seen the movie. I know Issa Ray is a main character in the movie, but the soundtrack, um, man, it's such a beautiful soundtrack. Um, it's uh, produced by Robert Glasper, who's um, a, you know, a Grammy award winner, one of my favorite musicians um, ever. I mean, I look at him like, you know, when it's all said and done, he'll probably be up there with Coltrane and, and Davis and, 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 you know, some of the heavy jazz heavyweights, he's just a brilliant uh, musician, com, uh, composer, arranger. So um, the, the soundtrack is just great, man. I've just been listening to it a lot, just some really like, you know, cur curl up in bed with your book uh, on a rainy night or even not a rainy night, but just that type of vibe throughout the soundtrack. Um, it has a couple other, you know, songs in it, but it's mostly jazz um, all throughout it. And it's just just a good, easy listening soundtrack that um, will put you in a, in a good space. So that's 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 my pick. Yeah, Robert Robert Glasper. I I know Robert Glasper because uh, he's in a few of those groups with Terrace Martin. Mm -hmm. Terrace Martin is he's, you know big big LA jazz guy playing plays a lot of the jazz venues in town because yeah because the LA the LA jazz scene you know in terms of those those regular regular weekly shows has been consistent throughout yeah. my life. Like yeah, you talk about jazz ebbs and flows like you know Coltrane Thelonious and all that, but in terms of like the modern jazz like you know beyond Wynton Wynton Marsalis and all that like. The LA jazz guys, like you know, Thundercat and all those guys, are, are come came up out of that scene. Yeah, Austin Peralta, rest in mm -hmm. you know, yeah. But um, so I so, saw yeah. I saw Robert Glasper in LA. It was the week that he won um, his first Grammy, and uh, saw him at the Roxbury, and it was just like you know, it was one of those shows where you know, like everyone was standing up. There was no you know, and he just kept everyone in there entertained. He did. Uh, uh, some of his work, uh, Black Radio, right? So he has a Black Radio 1, 2, and 3 that was just released this year. Um, but, man, it was just just a brilliant show. Like, this guy was, like, on two pianos. Like, just, just I was spell, it was just spellbound. And he's just going back and forth. Like, and I'm like, man, like, just crazy gifted. Like, um, so, yeah. And then, 
you know, he was bringing out certain artists, you know, um, to perform with them. Like Music Soul Child was there. Uh, Marsha Ambrosia uh, was there. Uh, Ladisi was there. It, it was the weekend. I was like, why is everybody showing up for free? Like, we didn't even know they're they all just came up on stage and, and sung like Bilal was there. But I realized oh it, it <laughs> nice. was the it was the week of the the Grammys. Right. The Grammys were that was that weekend. So everybody was in town. And it was just an amazing show, one of the best shows I've ever uh, witnessed. But um, if you're into jazz, um, and for you know, it's just you definitely have to listen to that soundtrack or anything that Robert Glasper make, produces, and just super talented. Yeah, good pick. Until we talked about that curatorial eye in terms of like you just have to kind of get yourself exposed to to the things, and then and then when you when you see it, you know it. You know, like yeah, mm-hmm. when you when you see greatness or when you see like this really someone who really just cares about their craft creating then it just like, it does speak to, you know, speak to you in, in, on a deep level. And that's really what kind of makes it bubble to the top is when it has that kind of heart and soul to it. And, and you know, Glasper stuff, Terrace Martin, all those, all those cats in the new, the new generation, they're, they're still bringing it. Like, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely worth checking out and, and diving in deep on for sure. How about you, John? You much of a jazz person or do you have a music musical style of choice? My taste is pretty eclectic. I mean, I like everything um, except maybe, heavy metal (laughs) (laughs) um i uh tend to listen to this radio station uh called the current uh which is based in minneapolis i find that they have um a really great uh combination of old and and new music i mean i grew up with you know new wave and and uh, that kind of thing so I find the music that you grew up with as a teenager is something that you just always sort of gravitate back towards and triggers that those endorphins and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. My, my um, older sisters, I can thank for getting me in a new wave. Like they were the ones that hit me on like the Holy Trinity in LA is the cure Depeche mode and the Smiths, you know, and like, yeah. like it, it crosses boundaries. Like, like I would not be able to, to go out in East LA without getting beat up uh, without being a Smiths fan or like having that, like, I'm just a rocker, leave me alone. You know, like, but that was that was my 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 foot in the door because everyone was down with that stuff in LA. Like it was just it was just the way in that yeah that new wave sound is very special to me. Yeah, um, huge Depeche Mode fan. I saw the Smiths in I think I was in high school. It must have been in 1982. It was in this teeny theater in uh, DC, Washington DC, and um, you know with Morrissey. I can't there, believe that. I can't stage. believe you actually saw the Smiths because I've seen Morrissey many times. You know, yeah. like but to say that you saw the Smiths is like. Like my heart is the heart to flutter to beat. Like if that, I mean, just in the same room because because they'll never be in the same room again. They hate each other now, you know. Yeah. So, but it's like, yeah, like Morrissey, Johnny Marr together playing together. Oh man, that's yeah. that's incredible. It was one of my first concerts. So it was pretty memorable. Yeah, I I saw yeah I've seen Morrissey a few times. Last time I saw him was at the Claremont Colleges. He played like uh, 96, 97. I haven't seen more of his recent run. It sounds like he still has his voice. You know, I've seen the Cure multiple times. The Pesh Mode. And there's, they're doing like a kind of a new way festival, uh, cruel summer in LA, like next month. And I'm going to go to that. It's like Blondie, Devo, like Berlin. Like it's, it's just like all like, a, like up and down. It's going to be a great line. Bauhaus is headlining with Morrissey. So yeah, it's, I'm excited for that, but, but yeah. You know, the whole, um, subculture where, uh, Latinx, uh, youth are obsessed with the Smiths. Yep. I, that's, um, like I said, that's why that Holy Trinity. The Smith, yeah, I, Depeche Mode, and The Cure, like, yeah, it definitely entrenched for sure. I asked one of my friends about that, and he said it's because it's like this relationship to the mariachi, like this sort of sad song 
kind of thing. And I thought that mm-hmm. was really fascinating. And, and a lot of, for me, a lot of like, uh, like just personally seeing, seeing the family structure, it's like e- e- certain areas of, of town in LA where you grew up, you had, you had two choices. You could either go, you know, the Cholo life or you could go the rocker the ro- or like, you know, ra- Raquero life. So like there was a lot of, cause there's a lot of punk in Espanol, a lot of ska in Espanol. And there was the, the, the corridos too, the corridos, which is the, the classic, you know, those acoustic, those sad songs that you're talking about. But that was more for like the mariachis and the grownups, like the, the grownups were the reason that the, like, like a lot of grownups listen to oldies, you know, you talk about, but so those were the oldies. And then the new sound for the kids was that new wave kind of sound. So, so it was a lot of the punk and ska, but the, but a lot of the, that was rooted you know, based off of those new wave, po- no wave post-punk sounds as well. So that, I mean, the, the Cure and the Smiths and Depeche Mode just kind of just like, yeah, it was a nice segue for kids to later experiment, you know, they, they rock in Espanol, Escon Espanol. And it just, it just was totally entrenched. Like there was, it was my way to get into those communities was that was our common ground to start. And then we would go from there. Cause I got it from my sisters. My sisters were, you know, just it was, it was the, the radio station K-Rock, they would do the flashback lunch and so everyone was kind of into that. And, and when I was first getting into punk and stuff, like they didn't know that much about like the hardcore bands, but in terms of we could, we would connect with new wave and then we would go from there and we'd go to a ska show or something together. And then it'd be, yeah, it was all awesome. <laughs> it's, it's a cool scene down there for sure. And I'm always really fascinated by what I connect with in contemporary music. Like, like I'm really into dance music. I used to go to clubs a lot, especially in New York. And, um, but I, I was a huge Madonna fan for, for years before she kind of went off the deep end. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, uh, like Dua Lipa, I really, I really, I really like her. I think she's got a great voice. And she's, I like her music. Yeah. Sure. Or it, that's like what an example of a contemporary artist that I like, you know, in that, in that pop genre. Oh, yeah. Genre. Dua Lipa had that, yeah, that, that, that big hit. And like, yeah, her live sets are pretty, pretty, pretty fun to watch. So. <laughs> But yes, great picks, y'all. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing and uh, and kind of see the, the culture blend in there. Um, we're we're pretty much done here in terms of what we official things to to get through. But John, is there anything else you want to close with? Anything you want to plug or you know before we leave? Well, we we just rebooted our internship program, so we divided our we used to have one intern who would curate an exhibition of student work every year, and now we've divided our internship into three. Um, different internships. So we have our curatorial outreach and education intern, and we have um, an art history and research intern, and we have an art handling and exhibition design intern. So um, we have filled the two positions for the art history and the curatorial intern for next fall, but we're still looking for an art handling intern. So I want to just plug our internship program, you have great opportunity to get hands-on experience with working with art and artists and learning about arts administration, curation, um, research, all those kind of things. So anybody, it's not just for artists, it's for art history or people that are in other, um, I think it's really important to encourage people that are studying other topics, other areas to get involved with the arts. Um, I've heard a lot about like how medical professions um, can learn a lot about how to um, to analyze things through their um, experience with the arts. So that's a great example for me. So is, is, is the requirement just to be a student or is there there's, there's nothing beyond that? Just to be a student? Uh, well, the thing is you have to be um, federal, federal work study eligible to be paid. 
Um, but there is an option to do a volunteer internship where you get credit um, through a work pro uh, study pro uh, program through the college. So you, do, you can get credit, even if you get paid through a federal work study, you can still earn credits for the internship. And, and in terms of art handling, I mean, it, 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 I guess if you put in like a, if you like this, you might like art handling. What, what, would, you, what would you make, you know? If you would like to be handy, um, if you would like to uh, handle art and paint <laughs> and, um, you know, design things, um, you know, the art handling intern helps me to decide how to hang the, the shows, how to build the pedestals, just the sort of outlay, the physical outlay, and also to maintain the space and things like that. So be kind of like stagecraft and theater and things of that sort. Yeah. Of, kind of, yeah. And also there's something that's called registrar. You help keep track of what comes into the gallery and what goes out. You do condition reports, you're responsible for shipping, packing, unpacking. It's a, a whole genre of career that somebody yeah. kind of working in the art field. Definitely seems like there's a, there's a career path there where, where there's no gallery that doesn't need help with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you're interested in starting that path, then that seems like a good way to go. There's a really great Instagram account. I don't know the exact handle, but it's like art prepared or um, something. And they just have like all these hilarious, amazing, clever ways of like doing stuff, you know, doing little handy things. So it's really entertaining. Oh, so there's a nice DIY aesthetic to it as well, where you kind of like figure out how you, what you're, what you're going for and then get there by any means necessary kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a really important job. You make, you know, you make a lot of lives easier. You solve a lot of pro your problem solver. It's a really important position. All right. Yeah. So I'll All definitely, right. is there info that on your website as well? Yeah, under our website, there's an internships tab. It has information about how to apply and the details. So I'll link specifically that in the show notes as well. Good, good to know. Hopefully, hopefully someone listening will be the one that fills, fills the position and be like, yep, I heard about him. Get a voice. That's, that's how we do. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, John, thank you so much for being thank on you the so show. Much, John. Yeah. Thank and, you. and, and opening up a little bit about the gallery and, and what brought you here and everything. Um, again, the Atkins gallery in the humanities building, um, what H202. Correct. Was that? Yeah. H202. On the, uh, can on you give the, me, on the bottom you, level. Give me the hours one more time. Uh, Monday through Thursday, 11 to five, Friday, 11 to three. Yes. And by appointment, anytime. By appointment, anytime. If you want, if you're in the community and want parking, then uh, send send the gallery an email. Uh, yes. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes, and uh, check it out because because like John was saying, the only way to build that curatorial eye is to expose yourself to to more and more art. Figure out what you like. I mean, that should just be true for everybody. I mean, I, I feel like just like we we get so locked in and specialized in this world nowadays. Where like you from a very young age, you think you know what you want to be, but in, in high, like you get to a certain age, you're like, I was wrong. I didn't, you know, like it's only through like that kind of renaissance person approach of like like really blasting yourself out there that you can really kind of see kind of the little nooks and crannies of life. And art is like an essential piece. I mean, we, we get so hung up on the medium, but like you know, music is art. Art, you know, like the painting, photography, film, it's all you know, it's all it's all creative expression and, and spirit. So like if you're not kind of allowing yourself to to swim in in all the water then you know like like what are you really doing you know so so please get out there and and see some art thank you thank you as always akil uh, thanks again john it was an honor thanks, john. until thank next you. time uh this was viquetta voices take care y'all peace y'all bye thanks <laughs>